Searching for a new home? Make todayshomebc.com your online home base. With easy-to-search listings and connections to local realtors, everything you need is under one roof. Powered by Black Press Media, you can search hundreds of local listings all in one place. Access the top real estate professionals to help you find the perfect home today at todayshomebc.com. I'm Peter McCulley. On this edition of Today in BC, it's our Made in BC book club featuring two authors. We'll chat with Bob Williams, the former British Columbia cabinet minister, who played a key role in establishing the Agricultural Land Reserve and the Insurance Corporation of British Columbia, ICBC, during BC's first NDP government in the 1970s. Using Power Well is a biography. I see a naivety around decisions being made, particularly on housing. The fact that the housing problem is so serious in this province, especially here in the Lower Mainland, given what we're doing now, it's almost unachievable because the rush to the province from the rest of Canada and internationally is so substantial. And in the Lower Mainland, we have a limited capacity to accommodate them. So we have to rethink the way we settle people in BC. And that's exciting, actually but it ain't happening even with my government right now. We're also chatting with award-winning author, lead singer of The Smugglers, a goalie for the Vancouver Flying V's Beer League, and CBC broadcaster Grant Lawrence. The sequel to Adventures in Solitude is Return to Solitude, with stories about the Cougar Lady, Russell the Hermit, the Spaghetti Bandit, and others. I remember when they told me the story, they saw it from their perspective of him kicking and waving his arms, he was a brand new neighbor at that time. It had only been there a couple of months. And I remember the woman with the binoculars said, what is going on over there? What are they doing? The only explanation her husband gave when he squinted across the bay to see what was happening was they're European. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> on Today in BC, our Made in BC book club. The book is Return to Solitude with Grant Lawrence. Thanks for joining us today, Grant. Thank you very much, Peter, and thank you for that wonderful intro. Your dulcet tones have put me <laughs> right at ease, and I really appreciate it. That's one of those things that comes with age. At experience. Yeah, okay, sure. Yeah. <laughs> Expertise is the word you're looking for. We've got something else in common, besides dulcet tones, that in our hockey lives, we lived between the pipes. I haven't played in years, but players on my teams always said I was crazy. I always thought that's just where the fun was. Yeah, and I call it the lonely end of the rink. And I've even written a book about that experience. It's funny, it used to be the most dangerous position in hockey, mostly because goalies used to not wear masks. But it's now become pretty much the safest position in hockey especially in this era of much more awareness of concussions. Goalies are pretty bundled up down there. The full face cage and the heavy-duty padding. I'm now in my 50s and still playing in a pretty competitive league. And I think it's because I chose the position of goalie. Or I Actually, I didn't really choose it. The bullies made me take position <laughs> of goalie back when I was a little kid. But I do love it and still play. And I think my teammates think I'm crazy too. I took on goalie because um, I wasn't a great skater. And then after I got all that gear on and got in goal, I found out that you had to be able to skate out to the blue line and then go back to the net backwards as fast as anybody on the ice. And But that comes pretty quickly. It's like anything. 
in life. Once it becomes a necessity, like you have to do it, you have to figure it out. <laughs> you learn pretty quickly. I see that all the time. Throw them in and you learn. And it's a it's playing and having fun with any game is a great way to learn the game. My son, who's nine, is currently figuring out the myriad rules of Little League Baseball, which they are now playing full regular rules. And so he's still figuring out stuff like, well, I caught the ball and I touched second base. How is this guy not out? It's like, well, you actually have to tag the runner on second base, but you don't have to do that on first base. And there's a lot more rules in baseball than there are in hockey. And so he's getting his head around them, but you see how quickly they pick it up as the games are played. And that's really nice to see. Well, let's face it. There's just too many rules everywhere. There's a lot of rules in life. <laughs> sign, sign, everywhere a sign. With all that you've got going on, Grant, I'm not surprised it took you a while to write the sequel to Adventures in Solitude. I was pretty tired just reading your biography, actually. <laughs> and you mentioned well, that you've got a couple of children and uh, your wife, Jill, and you've got all these other mm -hmm. things going on. Yeah, a little dog behind me, too, that might occasionally give a bark. But yeah, there is a lot going on. But there was 10 years between Adventures in Solitude, my first book about Desolation Sound, and Return to Solitude. And there's a couple of reasons for that. But the main reason was that these are nonfiction books, creative nonfiction, and they're about real people. When the first book was a surprise success, the publisher, Harbor Publishing, incredible publisher here on the coast, said, write another one of those because this one was successful. That You see that in any form of entertainment, in film, in music, in books, it's just do that again because we can keep selling this. But I couldn't do it again right away because the stories just weren't there yet. I had told all the stories up to that date and I had to wait until I felt I had enough new stories piled up essentially to fill a second book. And that took a decade. So you know, in the first book, you're introduced to Bernard the German, you're introduced to the Cougar Lady and Russell the Hermit. In this new book, we take them to their end, to their conclusion in life. Pretty much everyone, a pretty bizarre <laughs> tragedy. And I laugh. That's one of the rare times when someone will laugh when saying the word tragedy. But one of the reasons I write nonfiction is you just can't make this stuff up in the way that some of these larger-than-life, off-the-grid characters left this world, you couldn't make it up. In particular, I'm thinking of Bernard the German, and I don't want to give away any spoilers, but this was a huge bear of a man that I became friends with in Desolation Sound. He had a health scare, midlife crisis, decided to sell his cabin in Desolation Sound, buy a sailboat, see the world, and he came to a very bizarre and unlikely and unpredictable end and a very unlucky end in the South Seas, but not to give too much away. Bernhard the German, there's yeah. a very funny story that left me oh. very itchy <laughs> about ticks. Yeah, that story that you're referring to, Bernard, the, and you're pronouncing his name the way he originally pronounced it when he was born in Trier, Germany, just in the aftermath of World War II when his town was basically a pile of rubble. 
It was on the Western Front, oldest city in Germany, and his name was Bernhard. He got teased for that when he got to Canada, teased for a lot of things when he got to Canada. It was not popular to be a German in Canada post-World War II at all for decades, and that lingered. And so even though he was born innocent, nothing to do with the conflict, his parents avoided the conflict. They were not fascist. They were anti-Hitler, but you had to keep that under wraps in Germany at that time. They got to Canada. Bernie changed his name to Bernard to be teased less. But to get to that tick story, Bernard held on to a lot of European customs. And one of the European customs was that in the summertime, he spent 90% of the time in just a Speedo. (laughs) You know, you can picture this guy. He's six foot 10 and he's a large man. There's a lot of skin there. There's a lot of hair. And he's always wearing this purple Speedo like all summer long because that's how Europeans do it. And Canadians, maybe not so much, at least put on a pair of board shorts or something, Bermuda shorts or something. No, not Bernard. He would wear this Speedo everywhere, including into the woods, because in Desolation Sound is a real Mediterranean climate. In the summertime, it can be very warm. The inlets really heat up. That's why Desolation Sound is famous, because the ocean temperature can get up to 27 degrees in the summertime. It can feel bath-like. So anyway, Bernard would go traipsing off into the woods and wearing nothing but a Speedo and his bucket hat and his flip-flops. And one fateful day, he came screaming out of the woods, screaming at the top of his lungs. And when Bernard screamed, it was like a deep bellow, like a... (laughs) And he was yelling for his wife, help me, help me, I've been attacked, help me. And his wife came out onto the deck, but Bernard ran right pastor and was tearing at his speedo and he ran down his rock steps and he just plunged into the ocean (laughs) and his wife didn't know what was going on and the first thing she thought of because she couldn't see anything she thought he stepped on a hornet's nest or something or wasps and chasing him he was an even tinier foe and when she finally got down there and got him Calm down. He was yelling, get them off me, get them off me. (laughs) And he had been besieged by ticks, those tiny little Mm -hmm. parasites with the little hook-like arms that reach out and grab onto your hair, pull themselves in and find a nice place to zap you and suck your blood. And I guess Bernard must have been sitting up on the bluff or something. And because he was sitting for long enough that the ticks got right under the Speedo uh. and they just burrowed in and, and they got all over him. Like he was a very hairy man. So they got into his chest. He had this famous black handlebar mustache. He kind of looked like one of those bartenders in the photos of the old West couple of them got in there because these things they can't hop and they can't fly but they can crawl pretty quickly and find a little spot bernard's wife had to get the tweezers and pull each and every one of these ticks out of bernard's nether regions as his big long legs kicked in the air on the rocks and desolation sound and it was quite 
a perplexing sight for neighbors that were wondering <laughs> what the hell is going on with that new neighbor. And there were two neighbors in particular that loved to know all the comings and goings and would have the binoculars going all the time. And I remember when they told me the story, they saw it from their perspective of him kicking and waving his arms. He was a brand new neighbor at that time. It only been there a couple of months. And I remember the woman with the binoculars said, what is going on over there? What are they doing? The only explanation her husband gave when he squinted across the bay to see what was happening was they're European. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. That's a great story. Thanks for reminding me of it. When I read the book, I immediately saw Cougar Lady and I thought it might be Cougar Annie because we had Katrina on the podcast recently who plays Cougar Annie yes. in her one woman show. But that's mm -hmm. not to be confused with Grant's Cougar Lady. That's a kind of a funny thing. You could look at it now in our more enlightened age and you could say, is that sexism that we called him that? And nothing to do with the slang term cougar for an older woman going after a younger man, which is actually a born in BC term, by the way, trivia fans. Rumor has it that term came out of the Canucks locker room in the mid-1990s. Anyway, yeah, I did a deep dive on that. I was going to say, you don't find that in the book anywhere. No, I think it's in my Lonely Under the Rink book, that <laughs> trivial tidbit. But anyway, yes, there's a few cougar ladies. There's another cougar lady, a famous cougar lady from the South Sunshine Coast in Seashelt. Then there's the probably the most famous one, Cougar Annie, on the west coast of Vancouver Island. And then there's my Cougar Lady, who's probably somewhere in between, who was Nancy Crowther. Why these names? They all have one thing in common. They were often single women raising livestock for sustenance in the BC wilderness. And so in the pioneer age, if you were raising livestock in the rainforest, inevitably you would deal with cougars because cougars have to sustain themselves on meat. They only eat meat. They're 100% carnivores and they want to go for easy pickings. So cougars were drawn to these farms after the chickens, after the young goats, after the cats, whatever they could get their claws into. When you depended on your livestock for your sustenance, you couldn't have it picked off by cougars. So you'd get a gun and you'd learn how to shoot it and you'd learn how to shoot cougars. Now, this was contrary to what the pioneer age of a woman was. And so these single women took on these nicknames. They would have Cougar put before their name. So we had Cougar Nancy, Cougar Annie over there. And these women were oftentimes single and often very eccentric as the end of the road or the bush tends to make you. And so that was the first woman that we ever met in Desolation Sound because she owned the property that was the best place to launch rowboats, but she did not like that. Uh, but the beach is public, though she would make a claim that it wasn't. <laughs> so yeah, the first time we ever met our cougar lady in Desolation Sound was my young family tippy-toeing across her property to try to get to the beach. We got caught, essentially. And I was only six years old, and her dogs came running, barking, snarling down onto the beach. I can still remember the crash of the gravel that their paws made when they hit the stones on the beach. 
I was petrified. There's a pack of dogs. And I was only six years old. And my I remember my dad grabbed me and just plunked me into the rowboat. And he grabbed an oar and turned to meet this pack of dogs. And then we heard the word quiet <laughs> in a kind of a British accent. We looked up and there was this wilderness woman from the bottom. She was wearing muddy rubber boots and wool socks pulled up over the rubber boots, a kind of plain dress, a red and black checkered Mac jacket, an apron. And I remember her face. I can always remember her face. She had a kind of a round face with lines in every direction like a European roadmap. And, and she had her most famous appendage, a rifle, which <laughs> she always had with her. And it was a big, greasy, three-aught-three, a very powerful gun. And she pointed it at us and said, what are you doing on my property? I've never forgotten that either. It's the, probably the first and only time I've had a real gun pointed in my direction, thank goodness. But my dad talked her down. She allowed us to launch. And after that, when she realized that we weren't out to do her harm or steal from her or raid her beach of oysters or clams, she actually became a wonderful, very open book friend in the later years of her life. There was always this nice, warm, snug cabin for my sister and I to visit when we were coming back and forth from Desolation Sound in all manner of weather. I remember that some of the food she would make, like the bread she would bake, still the best bread I've ever tasted in my life, and dipping it into some of her soups. It could be the coldest, wettest, nastiest day in Desolation Sound, but you got in that cabin, and it felt like the coziest place on earth. She eventually passed away when I was quite young still, so we only knew her for a few years but she left an incredible lore in our neighborhood and a legacy. The road that goes out to her cabin, which is still standing, is now called Crowther Road. The Cougar Ladies Cabin has been the base of Powell River Sea Kayak, run by the Valance family for the last 20 years. And they have kept up the cabin. It's in great shape. It's the original logs. From the 40s, there was a fire where the original cabin burnt down, then it was rebuilt in the 40s. So that's a piece of desolation sound and oak over history that is real and tangible that people can still see and visit. There's lots of great stories in the book, Return to Solitude, Grant. And I wonder if you could leave us with a story about my favorite character in the book, Russell the Hermit. Ah. Somehow he was married to a woman who finished second in the Miss Nude World Contest, and had a run-in with a Sasquatch. That's true. I've already talked about two very fascinating characters in my life, and that's the gift that my dad gave me when he chose this foreboding place to have a family cabin. It was the gift of characters. It was the real-life beachcombers. At first, my family was very much not into it because it is, it's a rough, wild wilderness environment. Never know what the ocean's going to throw at you. These people, these outsiders, outliers that lived up there, clung to the shoreline like barnacles. They became very fascinating. And so growing up to become a writer, to live that story as a youth, I'm very fortunate. And so my parents were quite conservative. They didn't let me listen to a lot of music. 
They thought the Beatles were crazy and a bad influence, and which seems ridiculous now, but they thought so. You know, my dad was very against the hippie movement, and he, you can imagine his shock and disgust when a hermit ended up in the cove beside our cabin, who was very much a hippie, very much into an alternative lifestyle, very much into experimental drugs and everything else that you can imagine, just the opposite politics of my dad. But this man, this hippie hermit, Russell, who led a fascinating life, became a mentor to me. I was a young, scared of my shadow nerd. And this guy who originally came from northern Alberta, was a juvenile delinquent in the 50s, was a kind of pseudo businessman in the 60s, when really was not involved in the hippie movement until he eventually at a stockbroker party tried marijuana. And then he just it just opened his mind up. And so he was late to the hippie movement. He got to it in around the early 70s, but everything changed. He dropped out of the Toronto rat race and he made his way across Canada and his hair and his beard just kept growing as he made his way. But yeah, he was married for a while. One of the things that he embraced in the hippie lifestyle was nudity. And he really wanted to be nude all the time, even in Toronto. He lived in a downtown Toronto townhouse. <laughs> and once his life started changing, he bought a stereo and he would crank up records by Creedence Clearwater Revival and Frank Zappa at full volume. And the neighbors would come over and bang on the door and he would to complain about the noise and he would open the door his head would be in a cloud of pot smoke and he would be buck naked <laughs> and they'd be like, okay, forget it. He convinced his wife to be in a Miss nude pageant, which was a big one. As you mentioned, I think it was Miss nude world. And she came in second place, but that was a little bit questionable because I think that might've been more for his ego and pleasure than it was for his wife's as was often the case in those types of situations. But anyway, they didn't last long. And by the time Russell ended up in a homemade shack in Desolation Sound, beyond any road or any semblance of electricity or plumbing or or anything, he was a full-blown, real-life hermit that lived in this dank shack for 10 years and really changed my life. He opened up my mind to rock and roll music and to alternative writing and books that I had never heard of or writers that I had never heard of. Pulp fiction, beat writing, a lot of the beat writers from New York. And it was just a real cultural awakening for me. The irony being that he was doing it with very little resource. So there was no library around. There was no record store around. It was just his descriptions would fill my head. And I would often write the names of the artists down. I would write Credence Clearwater Revival or Chuck Berry or Little Richard or whoever and go back to the city and look up these artists. And that had a major effect on me because, you know, I've Joined a band, as you mentioned in the intro, was in a band for years, toured all over the place. And I remember one of my proudest moments, Peter, once I joined the rock band, I didn't really go back to Desolation Sound much for a long time, but I did make the trek once to present to Russell our first album, The cool. Smuggler's first record. 
And on that record was a cover of a song by a band that he first told me about, a really great band called The Coasters, who did 50s novelty songs like Yakety Yak, Don't Talk Back, and Charlie Brown. And they also did a great song called That Is Rock and Roll. And we did that song on our first album, and I was able to give it to him. He was not able to listen to the record because he didn't have electricity or a turntable or anything like that. But when Russell eventually passed away, what was still in his collection of dusty old artifacts and books and photos, but that first Smugglers album. So he kept it for 30 plus years from shack to shack that he relocated to. So that warmed my heart when I found that amongst his things. The book is returned to solitude with Grant Lawrence. When Today in BC's Made in BC Book Club continues, Bob Williams and his biography, Using Power Well. Discover what's happening around our province with todayinbc.com. Sign up today to get the latest news right to your inbox and never miss the news that's important to you and your family. From community news in your neighborhood to what's happening in our province, your source for daily news is todayinbc.com. Today in BC is a Black Press Media podcast. Bob Williams is a former British Columbia cabinet minister who played a key role in establishing the Agricultural Land Reserve and the Insurance Corporation of British Columbia during BC's first NDP government in the 1970s. For 30 years, he was owner of Vancouver's Railway Club, and more recently, Williams was influential in helping to build the Van City Credit Union into the leading cooperative financial institution in Western Canada. Using Power Well is a biography by Bob Williams with Ben Izzett and Thomas Bevan. Thanks for joining us today, Bob. That's a pleasure. I was reminded immediately reading your book about how young the city of Vancouver really is in comparison with, say, Eastern Canada, when you were writing about hauling drinking water as a young lad in northeast Vancouver and living in cottages on the east side. It's true, and I've been fortunate to live a long life and have a memory. I have fond memories of being with my grandmother at her squatter's cabin at Roche Point on the North Shore and rowing her across the inlet from Burnaby and packing food. And as a 10-year-old, I rode my granny across the great inlet that we have here and had wonderful illegal summers. Early in your career, you became a planner for the city of Vancouver, which, as it turned out, gave you quite a bit of insight, which was valuable into the inner workings of the city, when you decided later to run for the position of alderman. Yeah, that's right. The east side of the city was always left and never represented on council, and they had purposely rigged it so that we wouldn't. And so it was wonderful as a young man of 31, 32, to challenge the whole civic establishment out of nowhere. I came in last, but I came in. It was a wonderful experience. As it turned out, the council was very receptive to my reasonable left ideas and accommodated me regularly to the point where, you know, the most conservative of them were shocking, shocked that they hadn't made control of the place. So it was a lot of fun. And there was a particular zoning issue where 
they were doing zoning in uh, Carisdale, and most people didn't want Carisdale to expand. And I was keen about Kitsilano, which wasn't the Kitsilano we know today. It's what I envisioned. And I realized that there was one alderman who was near Senile, but if you captured him on Kitsilano, you captured him and then you got the vote. And that's what I did. I kept saying, you, this will not help Kitsilano. And I kept emphasizing that. And the counselor that was trying to get the new stuff in Carisdale knew what was happening. And he sent me a note after I'd won. And they were all surprised that I had won. And I said, see me in my office when council's over. <laughs> so I thought, uh-oh. And I waltzed over to his office and had opened his empty filing cabinet and pulled out glasses and a crock. And he said, sit down. That's the best piece of work I've seen in there for years. You really had me. When you started really rattling the kids line on Abe and the counselor who ran showboat there and so on, finally woke up and realized how he had to vote. He knew that he was added. It was a wonderful experience, and we, we drank to that. Later on, you ran for provincial politics and became a member of the first NDP government in the province in the 1970s. What was the main difference between being a municipal representative and being a provincial representative? Oh boy, it was night and day. I'd been accommodated at city council. They listened to me and they made the changes. I even got the rights for tenants to run for public office, which we didn't have in those days. But I got that through council and then through the legislature. But you got to the legislature and you were put into a crummy office you had a big table that 12 MLAs shared and piled books up between themselves just to create a bit of privacy and passed a telephone around, for God's sake. And I just come from my own office and secretary and all those niceties in Vancouver. So I said, the hell with this. I'm not going to take it anymore. And they all looked at me and laughed. And I said, no. I said, I'm getting a little table and I'm putting it out in the hallway and I'm going to have a secretary out there and a telephone. And when the old man Bennett comes along plodding up to the legislature, he's going to see me outside of the office and he's going to have to figure out what the hell he's going to do. And sure enough, Bennett came along, saw me there, and we had offices within a month. The rest of the gang learned a little bit from the kid from the city. <laughs> when you were a cabinet minister later on, you had a dual portfolio, which I guess <laughs> in those days, government was much smaller. But you were minister of lands and forests and parks and recreation. And to me, those two seem to go hand in hand, especially for a former planner. Was your philosophy the same as you approached both those jobs? No, not at all. The parks and the recreation stuff, I had met privately with the parks people for my whole career and was keen about all the new parks we could do in British Columbia. And so I met with that deputy at our cottage on the lake in between governments and said, okay, what are we going to get done? And we went down the list. And out of that, I said, okay, the Forest Service has been winning all these games. The industry has been winning all these games. We've had no parks, new parks made for decades. And I'm going to do it. And he couldn't believe his ears. And we created more parks than we ever in the history of the province. There's a percentage in terms of the international goals for parks. And we achieved them in our first term. 
So it was exciting. They were parks that I cared about and that were gorgeous. And British Columbia, come on, there's no place like BC for parkland. That is true. Having been in power as a provincial government for about just over three years, what would you consider some of your major accomplishments other than the parks? Oh, just capacity and running things. You know, I even look now and see what's happening and I, I see a naivety around decisions being made particularly on housing. The fact that the housing problem is so serious in this province, especially here in the Lower Mainland, given what we're doing now, it's almost unachievable because the rush to the province from the rest of Canada and internationally is so substantial. And in the Lower Mainland, we have a limited capacity to accommodate them. So we have to rethink the way we settle people in BC. And that's exciting, actually. But it ain't happening, even with my government right now. There's lots of things we could be doing because this is such a grand province, really. And we have to rethink the nature of our port and how busy it builds the lower mainland and how we have to have now think in terms of an inland port and the interchange of goods in the interior. All creative stuff, and it's exciting, but it requires the mindset to accommodate it. I see BC. It was started by Bob Strachan, our original leader, when I came here. It's a very bold piece of work, and it had its rumbles, but we pulled it off, and and I understood from Bob Strachan that this was essentially a center of capital. It wasn't insurance for cars, essentially. We were assuming the role of Toronto and New York in terms of amassing capital for long-term payments in an insurance system. And once you understood that, it was really exciting. And so my focus when I was at ICBC was how to manage those long-term funds. And we were talking about billions. And I had a view of Surrey, south of Vancouver, as the new center of the region. And we've always been a binodal region in terms of the old urban system, but it was New Westminster, not Surrey, that was the other center. And so I was able to build a new city center in Surrey. Then it now it's dramatic. It's got a new university. It's expected some of the great crown corporations to be there, and I know they will yet. It's a new city center in the whole region. And civil servants in Victoria couldn't see across the river and see that it was there. And now they know it's there. <laughs> They've actually said it's their policy, but that's 20 years later or something like that. You mentioned ICBC and amassing capital. Is that part of what you talk about in the book as good debt and bad debt? WAC Bennett was very impressive, and it was a great premier before us. And we learned a lot from him, good and bad. And one day in the legislature, he gave a lecture about good debt and bad debt. And it was profound and simple, but profound. So he talked about BC Hydro after they took over BC Hydro. And that was a right-wing government nationalized the power system of British Columbia. That's how BC is. It's very transferable in many ways. WAC said, Debt at BC Hydro when you're building new dams and solid stuff for the province, that's good debt. It's not dead debt. It's not dead in terms of achieving new things and new products. And so that was a very simple definition of good and bad. 
from W.A.C. Bennett, and I certainly accepted it. And we did, too. It provided us a base for a lot of the bold things we were doing. You resigned your seat in the legislature at one point to open up a seat for Dave Barrett to run. That's true. It was a big decision, but I functioned quite a bit as a bureaucrat in a way in terms of planning the future for many ministries. So I actually planned the future of half a dozen ministries as well as the ones I had. I started to appreciate the potential role for a a super bureaucrat. And I guess I have enough of an ego that uh, I went for it. It was fun. And in effect, pushing many of them aside, bringing in the brightest people in the province to achieve what we wanted uh, was exciting. When we took over Canadian Cellulose, I had brought together the most brilliant commercial lawyers in the province. And I, a left winger, had to learn how to become one of them which was really quite contrary, but it's a combination of skills that are a powerhouse. And so I became a powerhouse of a kind. And (laughs) Dave Barrett was such an accommodating buddy of mine that he had no trouble with any of it. Just go, Bob, go. And I went, I went. He didn't want you to buy Rolls Royce. (laughs) Well, I was in the mood and the team I'd pulled together, the outside commercial team who were buyout specialists and integrationists in commercial stuff were wonderful. And at the time, Rolls-Royce was up for grabs. And I thought, God damn it, I've pulled together a team that can do anything. And why not? Rolls-Royce is up for grabs. I was satisfied Rolls was a wonderful product, despite the bumps they were in. So one evening I said to Dave, God, I've got a team here and we're ready to go. I like to go after Rolls Royce. And Dave would take anything and imagine anything. Finally said, whoa. And I'd already taken over several forest companies and they were all going well and what the hell. And he said, I think you've got enough on your plate, Bob. He says, but what is it about Rolls Royce? I said, we are British Columbia, aren't we? But no, we didn't go with that. But it would have been fun, and I'm sure it would have been a success. And wouldn't that be something? Well, there would be a lot of British Columbians driving Rolls Royces instead of BMWs, I'm (laughs) sure. (laughs) Bob, tell me about your co-writers, Ben Izzett and Thomas Bevan. Thomas here is a wonderful example of potential of us in British Columbia. We're both graduate planners, uh, decades apart. And uh, Sam Sullivan, who I admire and who, uh, not an NDP peer, but a very thoughtful conservative, invited me to his class one day for a three-hour seminar, and it was great. And this six-foot-four guy had the most interesting questions and was challenging me throughout the seminar. And he followed me out of the classroom afterwards and said, hey, Bob. And I turned and we talked and he said, what should I be doing with my life? And he was a graduate planner in my field. And I said, based on just our session here, keep doing what you're doing. And I said, but then I stopped and turned and I said, but just a minute, I've got a big project coming up and we might want to use you on it. And he said, great. And this young man who said, what should I do with my life is still helping me out and changing the province in many ways. And uh, 
is got a great potential in terms of using his potential long life in very good ways, poisoned by my attitude. <laughs> We've become really good friends and, and academic buddies. Thomas is now with BC Housing and doing wonderful work there and in a very creative way. That's on its way. Ben Isaac, I met while I was working on forestry stuff in Vancouver Island in the Cowichan Valley, which I still uh, am connected with. And uh, he offered to become the first editor. So we got the bulk of the book done. And then Thomas was on my back over here to complete it. And we did. And Ben, at the time, was a city councillor in Victoria. And he's an historian as well and top part-time at SFU. And he's had a very aggressive career in Victoria, topping the polls and then getting tossed out. And he's also trained as a lawyer in the meantime. So he's doing very creative, aggressive stuff on the island around protecting old growth and stuff like that. So I've been really fortunate to have uh, two excellent people working with me and pushing me up the hill. So Thomas has been here pushing me for some time. And, uh, and so I've been far more productive as a result. It's his energy, not mine, that's pumping this up. That's a great story, Bob. And I love a great story. And I'm sure there's a lot of stories you could tell me about owning the railway club in downtown Vancouver. Well, I'm interested in the mix of things, the economy and the nature of the business and so on. And I'd come to the conclusion that early beer parlors in BC were the best investment in town. And once I'd thrown myself out of government, I was too corrupted as a politician to be a planner in any town at all. And even though that's unfair, it's the way it is. And so I ended up finding a beer parlor out in Port Moody that was a good buy. I liked them because they had capital assets that were solid, the real estate. And the real estate generally in beer parlors was fantastic and undervalued. And then there was just the business itself as a productive churning business. And their role as the living room of the community, which is the way I saw them in the east side particularly. And uh, so I bought the one in Fort Moody and uh, it did really well. But I realized after a short time that they were essentially entertainment businesses. There, The booze was certainly there, but you had to have entertainment. And we became the country music palace of the suburbs and did very well financially. And uh, then the truth is my two elder children didn't find jobs. So we sold the bar in Port Moody and we picked up the railway club, which was an old aberration run by an amazing few people, including this woman who was retiring. My eldest daughter is uh, brilliant in terms of music and it became the music center for the whole city. And her capacity and her son's capacity at the front proved to turn it into one of the best places in town and out of nowhere. And out of that, Janet found Katie Langley, who was just a farm entertainer in Alberta. And we brought her out to BC. And we had lineups every night to see her. It was the beginning of her outside of Alberta role. And she became friends of all of us and a wonderful, interesting person, as well as maybe the greatest singer in Canada. And that was really exciting, getting to know Katie. 
And so we went down to San Francisco and caught our first shows there. And we were back of the, just up in on stage, backstage watching from there. And that was when she turned out Shadowland, a record that was a great record at the time. It was very exciting being part of her career from the Railway Club. And similarly, we did other good stuff. Janet then became manager of Spirit of the West, which was a very good band from BC that, that wrote about the Railway Club. And there's a great band in Newfoundland that wrote a song about the Railway Club. Meet me tonight. I'll buy the first round. I found a little place you may not have found. It looks down on the city from the underground. It was a second story bar. So once that happened, I knew we'd made it as a bar and entertainment center. Bob, how was your relationship with Jack Webster in those days of being in government? He was known for not giving anybody too much rope. It's true. He may have given me enough rope to hang myself, but it didn't happen. I like Jack. He was aggressive and informed and put us all on the spot to the point now where there are awards given in his name uh, appropriately, but he dominated the news waves at the time. And uh, I got along with him and I enjoyed his tough interviews. He, if he's tough with you, you get tough back and, and you survive. The book is Bob Williams' biography, Using Power Well. Bob, what advice would you give to someone who wants to become a more effective leader? Be yourself. Above all, be yourself. And have the strength to keep really plugging on stuff you care about. Some of the ideas I have take a long time to get rooted. And I'm a follower of Henry George, an early American radical economist, who saw the settling of the West as the indication of access to land and property rights and those values as the means of getting ahead. And I profoundly believe them and don't think that economists think about some of those issues enough. Either they're freebies, the value of your land or the street or whatever. And it's there in many other ways, like airplane slots and airports and you name it. The, these are huge values that are not really ours. They're, they're property values that we didn't create. So once you understand that stuff, you start breaking down the privileges that are out there that people automatically accept are theirs. And that's that. But that's not the world we live in. And beginning to understand that begins to separate the issue of wealth in our society. So in that way, it's profound and uh, always guided me as I worked away. I'd like to thank Grant Lawrence, author of Return to Solitude, and Bob Williams, author of Using Power Well, for being with us on this edition of Today in BC's Made in BC Book Club. If you have suggestions or comments, send a voice message to podcast at blackpress.ca. You may be part of our podcast mailbag segment. You'll find Today in BC podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, iHeart, and Google Podcasts. Buying a home is an important milestone. Find the right realtor and the right listings for your needs at todayshomebc.com. Powered by Black Press Media. With easy-to-use search filters and direct links to realtors and their websites, you'll get all the information you need to find your perfect home.
Search hundreds of local listings and get access to the top real estate professionals to help you find your perfect property. Get started now at todayshomebc.com.